For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Well, state leaders are finally moving forward with a budget. After negotiations stalled earlier this week, Governor Stitt stood with leaders from the House and Senate to announce a budget deal for the coming fiscal year. Neva, how does this budget look to you? Well, I think it's a win-win-win. I mean, when you really look at it, uh, at the end of that lo- long process, we found that uh, the governor got uh, the the uh, points that he was looking for, and the House and Senate leadership certainly held fast to the things that they wanted. There were some compromises, as there have to be, to finally get the deal done. But when you look at an $8 billion budget, I mean, this is the first time we've now crossed the $8 billion mark. Uh, it was uh, seven point in this current fiscal year, but we also have the first time where um, we've increased Oklahoma's Oklahoma savings account without the law having to force it. I mean, basically, we're going to have a billion dollars in savings by next year, and that's that's a significant point, and that was something that the governor was really intractable on. And I think the other, uh, the other key point is that for the first time in state history, Oklahoma teachers have gotten a pay raise for the second straight year, and this does now put us as number one in the region in teacher pay. So significant points, many other things that were uh, uh, kind of first time in state history on, on some of the funding that that, uh, is in this budget. But all in all, I think this is a very bright prospect and something that Oklahomans can be proud of as they look into the details. Ryan. Number one, this budget would not be possible if we hadn't seen the revenue raising measures that passed last year. I mean, this this is what happens whenever government you give the government some money to fund things, they begin to fund things. And we also didn't see uh, a a real um, reversal in this legislative session of, of last year's revenue raising measures and, and trying to cut taxes again or give away revenue, we saw a lot of investment in state services. Now that said, um, even though things could have been a lot worse, I, I will say that we're missing a lot of opportunities here. I mean, we're putting $200 million into the rainy day fund right now that already has more than $400 million in there. Of that $200 million, there are a lot of investments that we're leaving on the table. I mean, Neva's right, two years in a row, teacher pay raises, that's a great thing. But at the same time, per pupil funding is still well below where it was 10 years ago. Uh, Department of Corrections has huge unfunded uh, infrastructure needs and repairs that need to happen at DOC facilities. I mean, we're seeing correctional officers getting a, a raise, but I mean, we could probably just call that meager at best. Uh, criminal defense law or, or the public defenders and the indigent defense system still woefully underfunded. I think that they're looking at around $2 million there. But there are a lot of really critical needs. There are a lot of agencies that took 20% plus cuts over the last 10 years that didn't see any increases in appropriations. So this is, in terms of a turnaround budget, it's a good first start, right? We're, we're beginning to see this new revenue plug in, but to say that we have you know, turned the ship around entirely, I think you know, really misses what's happened over the last 10 years. But when you look at things like when you talk about education, putting an additional $74 million into the funding formula for local classroom uh, needs, I mean, that's significant. I mean, we can't do it all in one year, but what we are seeing is very thoughtful, very deliberative uh, action to, to move the needle in all of these areas, uh, just like you mentioned in terms of criminal justice reform, uh, investing in the drug uh, courts, diversion programs, uh, revamping how 
how DAs uh, and the whole structure of how uh, uh, how they they are going to uh, have budgets. And I mean, we're seeing so many significant things happen that I think when when we really get more and more into the details that we'll see in many of these agencies. While there's a lot of room uh, that still uh, has to be made in terms of uh, getting where we want to see it ultimately, I think this is a strong first step, and we did it without uh, without just spending everything. I think it was. Uh, I think this two hundred million dollars, uh, uh, where we've moved it into the uh, uh, savings account, basically for the state, that's equivalent to only two months operating for the state of Oklahoma. But it does begin to give us uh, the opportunity to, in these downturns, which we will have. At some point in the future, we'll be better positioned to deal with them. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up uh, the, uh, cr- criminal justice and criminal justice reform. I, mean, we, I mentioned corrections. Our, our prisons right now, county jails around the state are just a dumpster fire. I mean, they are in a, in a state of total meltdown. Our prisons right now, the infrastructure that needs to be repaired there is just beyond critical. And, you know, I think that we've heard that from the director over and over again. But one of the other funding items, and, and you mentioned this briefly, Neva, was the $20 million to district attorneys to help reform the way their budgets, uh, the way their offices are funded by the state legislature. Right now, more than half of DA offices don't get their money from, don't get a majority of the money from their legislature. Now, I'm happy with them getting this money, but they should get this money and give up the fines and fees that they're putting on the backs of poor people. I did want to ask about the savings account. While it's good that we're putting money into savings account, there are restrictions. There are major restrictions on getting that money out. So if we need it for something, there have to be specific reasons and abilities to get it. So it's easy to put it in. It's not so easy to get it out. That's correct. But I think in this climate, I think that that the... uh that the notion of being able to put it in now and knowing that we'll be able to move forward into the next fiscal year with things being covered to the degree that uh, that this budget covers them, I think that that was not a cause for great concern by either legislative leaders or the governor, at least it, it appears from this, this point. I mean, if you look at you know, state public defenders right now, they're saying that they'll probably get around $2 million in this budget. And a lot of that, I think, will uh, likely be tied to bail reform in the event that bail reform happens at the state legislative at the state legislature this year, which you know, seems like there's a really good chance that we could see real substantive bail reform pass this session, um, that indigent defenders and public defenders have said, we need more money because we're going to have to show up more at these bail hearings. Well, they're probably going to get about $2 million for that. In reality, they need about 3 to $5 million, not just to cover the increase to their cost and overhead for bail, but just their general operations. Mm-hmm. And then in the meantime, we put $19 million in the Quick Action Closing Fund, which has a really poor track record and has very little transparency and accountability. And so there's money out there, whether it's the $20 million to DAs, $19 million to the Quick Action Closing Fund. You know, there, are, there are agencies out there and services that you know a few million dollars could make or break them and we're putting huge amounts, whether it's $200 million under the Rainy Day Fund that locks it away uh, or this money into the quick action or the, yeah, the quick action closing fund. You know, if you want to know kind of really a really good breakdown, I'd look at the Oklahoma policy Institute at okay policy, their Twitter feed. They've got a really good thread on there that kind of goes line by line through this budget of missed opportunities. But I think the question, and I think the, a uh, point that needs to be kind of injected into this whole budget conversation is the fact that the governor and his team, the cabinet that he's put together that have been charged with a high level of oversight and, and looking at transparency and accountability, as well as uh, Senator Treat and his loft bill uh, being uh, being put into place uh, that will allow for more transparency and accountability, looking at the numbers, getting real numbers, having a better handle on it, really the line item 
item. And many of these big agencies have been able to see it uh, at a level that they've not done before. I think it will put the burden and uh, the impetus on these folks to really be accountable uh, when they come back next year. And these lawmakers are going to have a better look at numbers than they've ever had before. Again, even leaving aside the substance of the budget bill, just the dynamics at play here. I mean, the the executive branch, Governor Stitt, his team played a much more proactive role, it seems, in uh, crafting this budget deal among legislators and being a, a partner at the table with legislators and moving key piece of the, pieces of this around. And, you know, we saw earlier Something this we week, haven't seen in, yeah, in, dueling in press conferences. Days, and yeah. I mean, there was a lot of negotiation behind the scenes and we saw some proxy fights on nominations. But a lot of that was because you have this executive branch that's weighing in in a way that they haven't. And years past, it was always the Senate and the House and the governor was just kind of, you know, there. And <laughs> uh, and now the governor's a, a real player in, in the numbers and that we're I don't at think today. there were very many areas that were really kind of cast aside or forsaken. Even when the Medicaid expansion conversation didn't move forward, when you look at this budget, there are a series of appropriation increases for health care programs that are very significant, things that have been kind of on the back burner that lawmakers for a number of years have been uh, uh, trying to advance. And this was something in these negotiations, as you say, Ryan, that the governor and, and uh, Senate and House leadership were able to forge through and come up with something that some of those numbers seem small, but they're significant in terms of really uh, kind of resetting the the mark on where they want to move forward. And we're not done yet. I mean, we could see some things that deal with budget items that aren't in this budget. Right. The, the earned income tax credit, the restoration of that, that's still a, a real possibility. There are other things that we could see that are ancillary to the actual budget bill. And we still have two weeks left so any of those bills could come through. Well, maybe. I mean, they, you know, they may pass this budget and, and knock out home. a handful of criminal justice reform measures and want to get out of that bill. Building. So, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, for I those of us... I think it will move fairly quickly unless unless there's something highly unusual that happens. I mean, most people now are saying that uh, that uh, by the end of next week that uh, lawmakers probably they, will they, be going I've home. I've never seen them stay at, come after Memorial. Only once. They certainly don't they want to. to. Yeah. And only because they had to. And they did their, their constitutional prerogative. The one thing that the legislature has to do is they have to get a budget and they got to get it on the governor's <laughs> desk and the governor's got to sign it. That's it. Anything else that they do is icing on the cake. That's right. Well, the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs is challenging the initiative petition to send Medicaid expansion to a vote of the people. The conservative think tank filed a challenge with the state Supreme Court, calling it unconstitutional because expanding federal health benefits in Oklahoma would allow the federal government to step on the duties of state lawmakers. Ryan, does the OCPA have a case here? I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the, how the Supreme Court deals with this. And I think that if you think about if, if we were just giving total control uh, to the federal government on Medicaid, then I think that we may have a problem. Um, but what we're doing is we're expanding the definition of eligibility in the state of Oklahoma. And we, we've done that through statute for years. One of the reasons that I suspect, I don't know for sure, that the drafters of this ballot measure decided to go to the constitutional route is that they've seen in recent years that the legislature come back and try to undermine the will of the voters uh, if you put something in statute the next le- through a ballot measure, the next legislative session, that legislature can come in and undo it or undo a part of it. Um, and so they wanted to put this in the Constitution. And if you think about that, that's to me, makes a lot of sense because health care ought to be a fundamental right and fundamental rights ought to be in the Constitution because they remove them beyond the reach of the legislative majority for that particular time. It makes it a lot harder to touch. And so you know, the, the idea that we're just changing this definition of eligibility 
Yeah, the, the federal government, they can do whatever they want in terms of, of funding, but we are the ones that get to decide that. And frankly, we decided we submit that application to the federal government for a waiver because we, we're looking at something uh, where we're asking the federal government to give us a waiver for a particular definition. If they don't give us that waiver, then, you know, we're, we're back to square one. Neva? Well, I think it is interesting when you say that uh, it's uh, it's harder to touch, but it's also harder to pass when you try to put something in the in the yeah. Constitution. Oh, yeah. I think we've seen that even in, in recent state questions. So um, it, it, this is one of those clear uh, public policy debates where there's there are two strong and very divergent uh, opinions on how Medicaid expansion should go or not go. I think it will be interesting when we look at the Supreme Court. As I understand it, one justice has recused himself, and we have two <coughs> vacancies, so we'll have six uh, uh, justices that will be making uh, this very significant uh, 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 ruling. And I think uh, it will be interesting also to see if the Attorney General uh, weighs in with an opinion on this as well, which. I believe the the court has invited uh, the attorney general's uh, office to do. So um, it, it will be fascinating to see. And I think OCPA, in asking for the petition to be barred from the 2020, the November 2020 uh, ballot, I mean, certainly uh, the politics of all of this is, uh, is a huge factor. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it will be fascinating first to see what happens uh, in the, in the legal, uh, in the legal process, and then to see if it moves forward, uh, how the, uh, the people of Oklahoma really respond to this. Because, as I say, I think there's clearly two very, very strong points of view on this that are that are polar opposite. And it's something that the legislature's battled uh, over for uh, years. And I think it, it's certainly a paramount uh, discussion that needs to have some resolution in the near future. And not just getting it passed, but getting enough signatures. It's yeah. like, what, 178,000 signatures? Yeah, something yeah, like I mean, that? Well, a, and you're, you're going to want to get more than that. So you're probably sure, looking at closer yeah, to yeah. 200,000 just you know, to, to err on the side of, you know, in case you get some mm-hmm. signatures that get tossed out. Yeah. And 90 days is a, is, that's the real is thing. The real, you know, is it, the real test there to be able to get that done. That, that, to make that to a year. Well, it, but they've you know, never that's, gone the, through. that's the real, uh, that's the real hurdle. I mean, if you talk to Kent Myers, who's kind of the, the, um, you know, the, the best election law ballot measure state question lawyer in the state who has more experience in front of the Supreme Court and writing these ballot measures than anyone. And he's representing the Medicaid expansion side here. Um, if you talk to him, the real obstacle isn't the signature requirement. It's the, the number of sig- It's the time that you've got to get it in. Mm-hmm. 90 days is really hard to get that. But I feel like they can. And they're really sophisticated operations. And if you've got a well-funded organization uh, going out and collecting these signatures, it's it's doable. And the, the thing that I... And Medicaid expansion pulls through the roof. Uh, you know, people are excited about it, which is one of the reasons that the politics of this, you want to keep it off that November <laughs> ballot because it become a, uh, a referendum in some of these candidate races as well or drive folks to the polls that may not otherwise show up, although it's a presidential, presidential year. year. They're going to so be people higher there. Anyway. Higher turnout anyways. And if the Supreme Court does toss this, I think that there's still probably enough time for the uh, ballot proponents to come back with new language, get it in front of the court, and go back out with signatures. So yeah, well, this is a first step. You know, I think that there's a good chance that it moves forward. But even if it doesn't, they've still got plenty of time to come back and take another bite at the apple. But it's also had uh, lawmakers or actually uh, leaders say, you know, Stitt, Governor Stitt has said, OK, I've got to give an op- uh, option, an option for people. Yep. And he says sometime in fall, he's going to have something for people 
to give them a second option instead of this. And I think, and I think, I think his uh, kind of positioning going into this uh, is significant because uh, clearly the governor, with his um, uh, with his favorability among Oklahomans right now, I mean, he has the opportunity to put some political capital into this equation and um, uh, become a real voice. Uh, so if if uh, if he has something that he lays out there in the fall, moving into the next legislative session, that begins to get some traction, perhaps. Perhaps that will be uh, that will be the real kind of test between these two ideas of which of which moves forward in the minds of Oklahomans. Well, you know, former Speaker Steve Lewis said, you know, the governor's looking at options, but there's only so many ways to expand Medicaid, and so those but, options but there are, are out there. There are states out there that have done some well, yeah. have done some things the that Arkansas uh, plan ha- have been to be. have been lo- have been looked at, and I think uh, need to be carefully looked at, and we'll just see whether any of those get some real. Uh, there was talk uh, about expanding into Oklahoma. Yeah. There was a law that was that. Was the bill that they're working on, I think that kind of fell apart. But maybe they, they maybe because they want to work on it and just a little the, bit better over the, the politics era. at the Capitol on this deal. I mean, for for the longest time, you know, ever since the Affordable Care Act passed, Obamacare passed, and the the legislature and, and Governor Fallon just didn't want to do anything that uh, had any sort of um, uh, uh, fingerprints of President Obama on it. They didn't want to endorse anything like that. And, but now we're at a point where, you know, the two champions of Medicaid expansion under the Arkansas plan in the legislature right now that have really worked tirelessly, two Republicans, uh, and you know, they, they've really uh, gone to bat on this. And so, I mean, I think that something is going to happen here, and it's just a matter of time. Now, uh, as former Speaker Lewis in a, in a blog post that he said, you know, what's another year? Well, if we get it done, you know, great. But for those folks that are struggling without health insurance right now, or if you're a rural hospital facing closure right now, that year can make all the difference. Absolutely. But the other thing is, uh, when we talk about another year, the backdrop of the 2020 presidential uh, campaign and Democrats and how they have uh, really the health care issue has been at the forefront of so many of their of their debates, how that will change uh, the look and, and how Oklahomans will respond. I mean, it, to this uh, uh, to this notion of more of the uh, the, the nationalized or the socialized uh, uh Healthcare. I mean, those things. I think we've seen have very little have very little support here in Oklahoma, and that's where the politicizing of this particular issue can really, I think, compound of what what we what we're talking about in terms of just the basic policy side. There was this real test after the end of the last legislative session, going into the election cycle, of whether Republicans that voted for revenue raising measures were going to be booted out in primaries. And really, the opposite was true: is the folks that stood in the way of those revenue raising measures that lost their primaries, and so. You know, the two Republicans that I was talking about there, Senator Greg McCourtney and Representative Marcus McIntyre, I mean, they have done the lion's share of work of building this, building support within the Republican caucus for this. I doubt that either one of them are going to be primaried out of existence mm-hmm. because of their support for Medicaid expansion. And, you know, and it, even if, if nothing happens between now and the 2020 election cycle, those folks not getting beat on the issue of Medicaid expansion will begin to send a signal, I think, to other Republicans. People want something to happen here. And it's not a political liability that we used to think that it was. Nominations by the governor had a bit of a hiccup last week, but this week they mostly sailed through without a problem. The full state Senate approved the nominations for former Senator Mike Mazie for budget secretary, as well as Estella Hernandez and Jennifer Monies to the state board of ed. 
they were approved. Uh, Neva, what changed here? I, th I think we had a process that just moved forward. And, and as I think most expected, uh, these nominees would be confirmed. Uh, I think the process in terms of uh, uh, these higher level appointees by the governor uh, having more scrutiny uh, by the by the Senate, having senators have the opportunity to uh, hear more of their points of view in the areas that they're uh, going to serve, such as education that we're talking about mm -hmm. with uh, uh, Jennifer Monies and Estella Hernandez. But at the end of it, it, it they were party line votes. Uh, the only exception uh, with uh, Hernandez received one crossover Democrat uh, uh, senator voting for. But but uh, it was strong, moved quickly out of the committee next day uh, the Senate uh, confirmed uh, these nominees and as you say I mean uh, Mike Maisie was confirmed on a 47-1 vote uh, this <laughs> yeah. week in the Senate so after all of the after all of the consternation and kind of the the uh, back and forth contention in one particular committee uh, hearing I think what we see which we oftentimes I think what we're seeing in my in my estimation it mirrors much of what we see in the congressional uh, hearings where everyone gets an opportunity to vet the vet the nominees have their questions uh, answered and then the vote comes down and oftentimes they are party line votes because of just the nature of the of the environment right what a difference a week makes you know, yeah. Senate, <laughs> Senator Macy under the crossfire last week I mean it was they, they recessed it it was just getting so out of hand. Um, and, and we talked about this last week. It was really a proxy fight, I think, both for budget negotiations, but then also for this issue that it, um, over the next few years, uh, as long as Stitt is in office, that we're going to begin to see. Because, you know, for the longest time, if you're a lawmaker, uh, if you're a state legislator, you're used to picking up the phone and not just calling an agency head, but calling some, you know, department uh, chief over an agency and saying, hey, I've got a question about the way this works. Can you tell me how this works? And can you tell me how this money is spent? Can you tell me how we should maybe do a better job here? And, you know, if you're one of those agency employees, there's always been kind of this question of, well, is the governor my boss? Is the uh, is the agency chief, uh, agency head my boss, agency secretary my boss, or do I report to this single legislator, even if that legislator is very powerful and the chairman of appropriations? And so there's this pool. And what we've seen is kind of this business approach from the state administration of trying to, you know, consolidate areas of hierarchy and kind of like a, a, a organizational flowchart. It's like, you know, you don't report to the chairman of appropriations. You report to the agency head and the agency head uh, reports to me. And that's what that real fight really became about was whether or not lawmakers were going to have that unfettered access to agencies. Now, we're, we're being told, well, if you've got a problem getting this information, now you just call uh, you just call the governor's office and, and Maisie will as Senator Maisie has said that he'll sort it out and get the answer for you. But we're going to see some uh, some turf wars uh, over the next few years. Not necessarily a bad thing, but it's you know, it's a healthy exercise of the separation of powers and the co-equal branches of government and figuring out who controls what. University of Oklahoma President James Gallagher is leaving after 10 months on the job. Ryan, did the resignation announcement come as a surprise to you? I think it came as a surprise to everyone. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, I saw a reporter tweet shortly after that said that he had talked to uh, President Gallagher the week before and, and mentioned something about, you know, tenure or resignation. And he said, well, nothing further from the truth. And here he is. He's, he's resigning. Um, I think that no one looked at the appointment of uh, President Gallagher as 
somebody who was going to serve a generation like his predecessor did. Um, you know, and I think that there was a lot of concern about who was going to step into this role to fill the shoes of President Bourne, who uh, his, you know, his legacy, you know, now it's now it's embattled at the university, but his legacy as a president of, of raising money, of you know, raising the, the, the prestige of that university and investing in research and tech, I mean, all of the things that he did while he was president, those were big shoes to fill. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there was always a sense that whoever took that place was going to have to come in. And in this case, you know, do some really hard things. I mean, he, you know, whether you agree with it or not, I think that there's some sense that he was hired as the guy to come in and clean things up, not be the most popular uh, president uh, in the university's history. You know, probably not going to have a prominent statue on the, on the Oval somewhere. Or if he does, you know, 10 years from now, people won't remember who that was. But, I mean, they, he did that job. And I think that he did the job that the regents probably hired him to do. Now the regents have a bigger job of selecting, you know, that next generational leader for the yeah. university. And they, I think, made, uh, they, I think that they've recognized that they made mistakes that first round. I mean, Gallagher was a guy who was hired to even apply. He didn't even apply for the job. It was a very secretive process. You know, a lot of faculty weren't included. Students certainly didn't have a lot of voice in what was happening there. And the university community, if you're going to pick a generational leader, needs to be much more included in a very open process that I think includes a big search. They shouldn't just, you know, start to look within their ranks and hire somebody and say it's a say it's a done deal. They need to do a, a big search and bring in the right person for this job. Neva. Well, I agree. It needs to be a, a big search. And I think when you look back, though, at any presidential search, I mean, there's always the knock that uh, there's never enough involvement by faculty and students and alumni and all of the different all of the different uh, uh, elements that uh, come into kind of come into that process that all care about who leads their alma mater, their university, the 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 uh, folks across uh, the state at large. And so I think that it will be incumbent upon the regents to really take this into account and probably do a, a, a better job than ever before because the scrutiny will be higher than ever before. But, you know, it's also interesting that, uh, uh, that, the, uh, that the OU president had said just a few months ago that uh, in an interview uh, that I read that said uh, that the uh, job was much harder than he ever imagined, uh, that he really, uh, he thought that this was uh, uh, in his uh, words, uh, was something to the effect that uh, it, he thought it would be an easy job and that wouldn't require the hours that uh, the long work hours uh, that uh, he had wound up putting into it for close to a year now. And I think uh, he come he came in with such a difficult uh, challenge because of the financial crisis uh, that the university found itself in. That he uh, that he really had to uh, be the the person at the helm to kind of move through move through this process. I think the other uh, kind of the other overarching uh, element to this was were the things that were happening on the campus. Some of the uh, some of the racist mm-hmm. concerns and some of the issues that came into play that uh, that became storylines that were very difficult. Uh, you know, always difficult to manage from an administration point of view and trying to make sure that the that the right message goes out to the public on how they are trying to to deal with that. So. I think it's always a challenge for any university to, uh, as you say, uh, find that next generational leader. I mean, someone who can move the university forward in a big way. And uh, it will be uh, it will be interesting to see not only what happens here, but how the what the impact now of this uh, of this departure is 
on the investigation that is still ongoing yeah. and uh, and would be uh, significant in terms of who the president is, who ultimately could play a significant role in that final uh, in in how that finally uh, is resolved. Well, yeah, I think that there's there's a lot of anxiety on campus right now among among faculty and staff, and I mean we've had that, and so just you know having some steady hand there, and whenever that investigation information does come out, it's going to be incredibly important to have a good leader there to explain that to the people. A resignation that we may be as important. Kelly Burley announced uh, leaving KOSU <laughs> as station manager. And so I, I want to just throw out it. Of course, know, he's uh, been here for 29, 29 years. years. You talk about a generational leader <laughs> who, right. who has watched an organization go from something to the, the amazing uh, out, uh, affiliate that it is right now at KOSU. You know, so, this was his idea. Yeah, so the, a, the, a, the, 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 This Week in Oklahoma Politics, Kelly Burley. A big thank you to Kelly Burley <laughs> for his service to absolutely. KOSU. So, I, you know, when you say that also, when you talk about making this change, uh, one of the one of the real difficult parts of that is if you have a real lengthy selection process, we could be talking about six months oh, or yeah. a year. So, I mean, the, the the idea of putting someone in place quickly uh, is um, is not very likely unless the regents come to you know to come to some meeting of the minds, believe that they have a consensus candidate among themselves, and then they they choose to move that person forward and see uh, uh, see what the um, kind of the overall public reaction is to it. They certainly have the prerogative to do that, and they may feel the need to do that in the best interest of the university. We'll just have to wait and see. Hopefully that'll just be interim, though. Yeah, that'll probably be interim there. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.